Welcome back to Memoirs of a Nigerian in Christ. This is episode 11, and we are picking up on part two of chapter five, Mayhem and Motherhood. Enjoy. Motherhood came with many challenges that no one warned me about. The most noteworthy of these being the constant feeling of both physical and mental exhaustion after a full day of parenting with no breaks, bathroom or otherwise. The exhaustion has been real, but the hardest part of motherhood for me was feeling forgotten. After our second baby, while I was home full-time with both kids, I made the mistake of reading some article, blog, or other online content where women were blasting stay-at-home wives and moms. I didn't get all this education to stay at home with some babies. I don't care what other women are doing, said one sentiment. I immediately felt diminished. I had finished seven years of school to the tune of six figures in student loan debt. And there I was, staying home with, quote, some babies, unquote. According to the logic, I was only valuable as a wife and mother if there was a paycheck coming in my name. Bring more to the table than just your appetite, another woman said, expounding that all women, married and single, must have their own money, and any woman who did, not, who did not was a failure, and an idiot at that. Her husband could leave, and she would be destitute and unable to provide for her children because of her own idiocy. The blow landed squarely. It was almost identical to the sentiment shared with me by my well-intentioned pastors and elders just a year before our wedding. You do not want to be a liability to your husband, they warned me. Telling me plainly that a wife who did not work was a burden that no husband wanted to carry. I recoiled at the sentiment. For as long as I have desired to be a mother, I also wanted to stay at home with my children for at least the first year of their lives, to bond with them and enjoy creating memories before daycare and babysitters became the norm for us as a family. As a married woman, I was doing exactly that, but the warning from my pastors never left my mind. I would cry bitterly during the months that I was home with the kids and not working because every financial strain felt like it was my fault. If I was earning a decent living, these things would not be so rough. But my husband would not be the only one having to carry the load of providing for our family. And I would be more than just an extra mouth to feed. All these sentiments that demanded that a woman must work, earn an income, and contribute to the family with a paycheck or she was less of a woman made me feel like a disgrace to femininity. The year my second son was born was one of the worst years of my life for that very reason. I was not earning enough and I could not get back into the workforce to make more because I had a newborn and a toddler with nobody else who could care for them except their mama. According to the world, what I was doing at home was not real work. You stay at home all day and you can't even cook, clean, take care of your children? Another sentiment that made me feel worthless. If the house was not spotless, meals were not cooked, and snacks were not prepared from scratch. Repeatedly, I encountered sentiments blasting stay-at-home moms for asking for help or not doing all that was required of them seamlessly. 
we did not quote unquote work so the least we could do was be the perfect homemakers it seemed my worth as a woman would only be measured by what i was producing and if all i was producing was children then i was a disgrace to womanhood the self-hatred began to manifest in my emotions i cried many silent tears afraid to let my husband see in case he agreed with those who thought i was worthless when my husband stated that he did not know what I did around the house all day, it was like a knife to my heart. What he meant as a passing reference was a confirmation of my worst fears at the time. I was useless and everyone knew it, even my husband. I despised the question, when are you going back to work? Because waking up three times a night to feed an infant, surviving on two hours of sleep, Getting up at the first crack of daybreak to bathe, clothe, and feed two children and keep them entertained for the next 15 hours was a vacation, apparently. Everyone expected me to continue to do these things, then add a 40-hour work week in there somehow. No one had any such expectations of my husband, and the inequity of it all disgusted me. Stewing about it did not make me feel any better. Raging about my mental load and how much work it was to be a mother and a wife did nothing to alleviate the negative emotions I carried. What finally healed my anger and gave me peace was the truth and assurance that God sees me. And my work is not meaningless, even if other people do not immediately value it. Even my husband, whose casual callousness had been so hurtful, did not fully realize the value I was providing to our family until much later. Now he is the first to appreciate my efforts around the house and with our children. When he can go to work uninterrupted, sleep without setting an alarm, and go about his day, and look up to realize his children have gone to school, eaten three meals, made it home safely, done homework, been bathed, and are sleeping safely in their beds, he recognizes immediately that it is the favor of God working in his wife to make his day as stress-free as possible. Yes, he helps. Yes, we are partners in the raising of our children. But let me be candid. I am the first line of defense. He is the head of our household, top management. I am the maker of our home. Whatever goes wrong or right is based on what effort I have chosen to expend or withhold. Ultimately, my children belong to God before they belong to me. So that takes a lot of the pressure off. Even if I drop the ball somewhere, God never drops the ball. However, as a good steward, I do my best to make sure that more goes right than it goes wrong. What I do in my home adds value, period. There have been times when the messages around me told me that the work I did at home was not meaningful. The attitudes around me often suggested that anyone can raise children so it was not important work. As much as Nigerians harped on married women having children, the system we operated under usually punishes the woman who stays at home to take care of their children. The understanding was that if you are married with kids, you need to work. Somehow the same village that would rally around a new mom and help with everything now expected her to do it alone and still work outside of the home. The honorable work of raising our children was being looked down on if it was not coupled with a paying gig. The same people who encouraged us to have children also expected us to leave their day-to-day -day care to babysitters, daycares, and schools while we pursued the almighty dollar. 
I know now that the work we do at home is not only valuable, it is priceless. Wives and mothers who stay at home to raise children are contributing the equivalent of $160,000 worth of services to their respective households. Should we be paid for our time and effort, only a six-figure salary would be adequate compensation. If you are a stay-at-home mom or work-from-home mom or wife, you are doing the most important work of serving people, children, who can never repay you. You are ministering to the least of these, and only Jesus himself can reward you. Furthermore, without your help, your husband could never command the kind of income he makes right now. You and the grace of God working in you on behalf of your household make it possible for your partner to go into the world and fearlessly pursue their dreams and their goals in the marketplace. Without the assurance that the home is taken care of and the kids are safe in your care, he will not even be able to focus on any of the work he does to bring in an income. Doctor's appointments, soccer practice, piano lessons, trips to the museum, you handle all of that so that your husband does not have to. If he had to call in a sick day or take vacation day every time the kids need something, do you think he will be free to build a business or climb anybody's corporate ladder? I don't think so. Motherhood is valuable work, whether other, others realize it or not. The fact that God's word speaks in such details about a wife and a mother's work in her household in Proverbs 31 is something recently shared with me by my good friend, Tierra. The chapter that we all love to reference for women, Proverbs 31, talks in extensive details about a woman's work around her house. God dedicated a whole chapter in the Bible to housework. Why? Because sweeping and washing is holy? Possibly. Everything we do should be done to the glory of God after all. But as my friend explained it, God spends time describing this woman's work in detail because he is trying to tell us that he saw it. He saw it and he saw her. She is worth taking note of in heaven and her work is meaningful to the creator of heaven and earth. Every effort we make in order to expand God's principles for a godly home is effort that is recognized by heaven and blessed by God himself. If you have ever felt the way I felt back in 2016, when I was grappling with my sense of self, please know one thing. God sees you and he honors the work you are doing. It is meaningful work and it will impact and influence generations to come. Your children's children will rave about what an amazing woman their grandmother was. They will praise the example you set for them for how to love God and love your family, even in the simple and the complicated daily activities of keeping a household running on all cylinders. You are setting a foundation for generations you will not even see, but your effort will resonate in eternity. You are seen, you are valuable, and you are irreplaceable in God's kingdom and his plan for your family. If you are a mother who works outside of your home, the Bible honors you as well. The Proverbs 31 woman had businesses, multiple. She worked and she provided for her household, even while doing the work it takes to keep the home running. 
Bringing an income into your family is an indispensable support to your husband. Many families today cannot survive without dual incomes. And the help you are rendering is literally helping your husband fulfill his heaven-ordained responsibility to provide for your family. Your work in the home and in the markets, marketplace is indispensable and you are seen. Your efforts are appreciated and the impact of your contribution will last generations. You are laying aside an inheritance for your children and God will continue to honor your sacrifice. As recently as today, I encountered more messages from professing believers that are not only humiliating and degrading to women who stay at home, but also contradictory and confusing. One of my brothers in Christ, when asked what advice he would give to the women around him, said, have your own money. His mindset was the same one that labeled me a liability to my husband while we were still engaged and gave me a complex about my worth as a woman. Both men and women regularly advise women to, quote, have their own money and not live dependent on a man. My own parents gave me the same advice. I understand the heart behind their advice. They want every woman to be able to take care of herself, with or without a husband. They want us to be independent. I don't resent their good intentions, but I reject their false thinking nonetheless. Marriage was not designed by God for us to be independent, whether that be emotionally or financially. If my marriage could end today and nothing had to change about the ways I lived my life or managed my money, because I have been so self-reliant that my husband's departure barely affected anything, then I submit to you that I have lived my marriage in error. The level of submission, self-denial, and vulnerability that the Bible commands between husbands and wives cannot be achieved when I am functioning as an independent entity within the confines of my home. I am not called to be an independent woman. If you describe yourself as such and you are a married woman, I promise I am not coming for your neck. I just need you to hear me out. I am not called to be an independent woman because marriage by its very nature requires interdependence to function, not codependence. The unhealthy I can't live without you, so why even try? I'll look on the world. But a healthy interdependent where our worlds have been intricately woven together that there is no affecting one without affecting the other. Full disclosure, I side-eye couples whose only common interest is the fact that they are married. They have separate hobbies, separate friends, separate accounts, and separate lives, but they happen to share a household and a bed. And sometimes even those are separate. But, but for the marriage license that joins them together, it would be hard to pinpoint how their lives intersect. That was not the marriage I had in mind for myself, and it's certainly not the one I believe God called me into. Couples who operate as individuals at every point in their relationship have not really coupled. They are two single people whose lives happen to converge in a common address. Then they diverge again for each to live their own life unhindered by the other. How can you love your wife to the point of laying your life down for her when you barely know anything about her other than her name and nothing about her life affects yours in a tangible day-to-day -day way? How can you submit to your husband as unto the Lord when you barely know his thoughts or his plans or where he's leading you as a family 
You do not talk or share any financial interests apart from making sure the bills are paid because you are both committed to having your own money. He only has access to his account and you only have access to yours. What part of being naked and unashamed has us committed to keeping our finances hidden from one another? And if my example seems extreme, it is by design. I want us to see the far-fetched side of what can happen when we only commit to mingling the parts of our lives that are easy to commingle and rather separate everything else because it's easier. I'm not saying that having separate accounts is sinful or that having interests outside of your spouse is wrong. What I am saying is that the more we commit to doing life without our spouse's input, interaction, or influence, the more we risk uncoupling what God has already joined together. Not just on paper, but as a matter of covenant. Whether we like it or not, marriage is not a contract. It is not all dollar signs and who pays what, and mutual interests and bottom lines. Marriage is a covenant. It is a God idea not a man-made institution. Like my mentor and sister Shante Truscott once said, we have made marriage common. We have turned what God called holy into something commonplace to be done and treated however we see fit. The sooner we return our reverence for God's design for marriage, the better off we will be. But back to the subject at hand. In my own opinion and limited experience, Independence in marriage, especially when taken to extremes, is unhealthy. We are called to weave our lives together in an interdependency that reflects God's original design for marriage. I am not ashamed to say I need my husband, because I do. My life does not work the same without him. Without him, my finances do not make sense. My parenting is incomplete, and my emotions are not operating at optimum levels. I am not totally self-sufficient, and I am more than okay with that. Because my marriage is a safe space, and my husband is my favorite place to rest my head and my cares. He does not replace God, but he is a resource that God uses daily to pull me back from the brink of despair, anxiety, and just a general feeling of being overwhelmed. Having a husband whom I trust completely allows me to come home and let down my guard, and I would not trade that for any amount of independence in the world. As to this notion that everyone having their quote, own money in a marriage, I call shenanigans. I know plenty of single women who were up and coming in their careers only for their husbands to appear on the scene like the ultimate plot twist. Rather than climbing corporate ladders, they join, fully join their husband in marriage and commit to building a joint vision for their marriage. Some of these women return to the workplace and balance home life with corporate successes. And some chose or were asked by their spouse to stay home and focus on the household while their husbands do the work of providing for the family's material needs. For the women who agree with their husbands to stay at home, there are several things at play. They have partnered with their husband to accept God's vision for their family and play a supportive role in bringing the vision to fruition. They are co-visionaries with their spouse, even if they do not earn a physical paycheck. The work they do in providing a stable home life makes it possible for their husbands to pursue their career missions unhindered. Whatever salary that husband commands, 
is absolutely the joint property of his wife. This is Bible. This is the law of the land, and it should be common sense. The person who provides all the resources for you to build a house and the one who does the manual labor of building have both provided valuable material without which the house could not be built. If the husband commands $100,000 a year in salary, I would argue that $50,000 of it was based on his wife's effort on his behalf. To come back after profiting from such a sacrifice and say that the wife who stayed at home did not have her own money is the height of patriarchy and lunacy to me. The husband's salary is their money, jointly. The wife does have her own money because for as long as her husband is gainfully employed, that income is their income together. The law calls it marital property. I call it scripture. For men who have been yelling for women to have their own, to now get married and ask their wives to quit jobs and stay at home seems like the height of hypocrisy to me. We, stay-at-home wives, have been dragged for filth by both men and women for being, quote, dependent on a man, when literally the Bible calls us to such dependency in marriage, but are often asked by these same men to forfeit our careers in order to build a new vision. For a woman like me who was literally traumatized into believing that not having a well-paying job meant that my husband would grow to resent me, the prospect of giving up my career and the means by which I earned what I considered my own money is utterly terrifying. But the same people who blasted us for being dependent would demand the sacrifice without batting an eyelash. To quote a modern day philosopher, make it make sense. And the hypocrisy is twofold. When you consider that the same men who demand that their women be self-sufficient, often due to their own fear of carrying the weight of being the sole provider for their family, even though the Bible calls husbands to carry this weight for the sake of their wives, these same men can in the same breath request their wives to quit her job and allow him to provide for their needs and wonder why their wives and partners resist the notion. If your expressed opinion concerning women who do not work is that they are problematic and burdensome to their husbands, why would you expect your wife to desire to fall into that same population and risk the contempt you have already displayed for women of her status? How is she expected to trust you to provide for her when your contempt for such dependency has been made known over the years. We are not designed to be independent or self-sustaining. God built us for community with one another and total reliance on him. The I don't need anyone mentality has never been forged in people who were taught to have the proper amount of trust and boundaries. That mindset is most prevalent and those who have been traumatized by depending on others and being grossly disappointed. Expecting others to hold you up and finding yourself flat on your face is a trauma. Whether it happened in childhood or it has been happening throughout your adult life, being let down by undependable people does not mean that relying on others is stupid or ill-advised. When people tell me now not to depend on a man, I retort 
that it's only an issue if your man is undependable. Mine has been solid for the entirety of our relationship and marriage. I trust the God he serves, so I trust the Holy Spirit in him. Just because our trust may have been broken by people who lacked integrity does not mean we get to prescribe a life of distrusting and mistrusting others and an unhealthy self-reliance in order to avoid future letdowns. Sure, we may prevent any future heartbreaks if we never rely on or open up to our spouses in a way that allows them the access to cause us harm. But we also miss out on joy, intimacy, and God's design for what marriage should look like, naked and unashamed. There is no amount of independence that is worth me losing the vulnerability and intimacy that my husband and I have had to cultivate over the years by depending on one another, sharing our lives and merging our finances. We fight about money because of our joint accounts. But without those fights and the learning that results once the dust settles, we would have never grown as friends and partners. Many of us are bypassing the fights over money by simply separating all financial holdings. But couples who never fight are not necessarily the healthiest. When we can fight fair, learn to listen and communicate with one another, then come up with a plan that compromises our deferring views well, I call that a successful fight. And I will rather have those exchanges that deepen our friendships and our union than separate accounts any day. Here's a caveat. I'm not saying everyone must have joint accounts. You can have a healthy marriage and have separate accounts, but make sure separate accounts do not disintegrate to separate lives. Continue to communicate and keep each other involved, but do what works best for you as prescribed by God. When I became a mom, I wanted motherhood to fill my voids, like marriage had promised to do while I was single. I had often heard women say that when their children were born, it was the moment they fully understood their purpose in life, to be a mother. When my son was born, I loved him fiercely. But looking in his face, there was no aha moment where I felt like my life's work was for this one moment of becoming his mother. I knew without a doubt that my most important work would be helping him grow to fulfill his destiny. But I did not believe that my only purpose in life was to live for him. God forbid he was taken away. Then what? Would my purpose for existing be over? No. My children are part of my purpose. But my purpose in life is to glorify God in all contexts of my life. My children cannot fill my voids because they are human beings. They are designed to be fallible and they will disappoint me at some point. I am better off centering my hope in Christ. As a Nigerian, it is not uncommon for our culture to center our worth on our role in the home. If you are a wife, but you do not have kids, you are incomplete. When you have children, it is your duty as a mother to sacrifice any and everything, including your life, happiness, sense of self, mental health, and possibly salvation to make sure that your children have everything they need and more. I know of women who have gone as far as consulting idols and bowing down to demons just to secure the future of their children. Mothers are expected to do everything to make sure our children succeed. It's funny that fathers not carry the same burden. If they work and they provide for their family, then they've done their own part. When I became a mother and found out I still had desires and passions 
outside of my children, I was genuinely confused. Motherhood was supposed to fulfill me. Being a mother should have replaced my desire to be anything else. So what if I did not have the career I wanted? So what if I was no longer pursuing my dreams of writing or ministering to women? Motherhood was supposed to fill up all of my needs and my desires so that all I would ever need to be again in life was a good mother to my children. If my children were thriving, I was doing my job. To be discontent with my life as a mother was to be ungrateful. There were women dying daily to have their own children, and I had the nerve to complain about being overwhelmed or tired or feeling like I was not fulfilling the purpose of God for my life. When I was staying home with my children, I was convinced that if I could do motherhood well, it would make up for my sense of failure in my career. Being a good mom was my new calling in life, and if I could devote myself to my children, then my life would be a success in my eyes and in the eyes of my husband and various loved ones. I enjoyed my time with my kids, more than I can say. I was there for all the different stages of their development in their first years of life. I got to hear them say their first words and witness their first steps. I was able to lay a strong foundation for learning for them. When my firstborn learned the alphabet, colors, shapes, and numbers by the age of two, I knew my effort was worth it. When my youngest began speaking in full sentences after his first birthday, I was a proud mama, although he did scare me the first time. He walked into the kitchen behind me and asked, is the food ready yet? It was just me and him in the house and I didn't realize he could understand that I was making dinner or that he had the language to ask for food. Overall, my, my children's development gave me a lot to be happy about, and I felt satisfied that I was doing my best to help them learn. My friend Stephanie had a daughter one year older than my oldest, and she provided indispensable resources to encourage their learning at home. Over the last five years, now six, of being a mom, I have come to a few realizations. First, motherhood is a vehicle to purpose. Motherhood itself is not my sole purpose. Yes, I am supposed to build a legacy and leave an inheritance, but there are many people who have accomplished that without giving birth or adopting children. Motherhood is a gift from God. Motherhood is an avenue that God uses every day to refine my character and my understanding of who He is as my Heavenly Father. But what if I had never become a mother? doesn't mean that I have lost out on the opportunity to be refined and to grow in my understanding of how God parents us. I choose to believe that God would have provided another way to give me those insights. And when my children grow up and move on with their lives, when they marry and have children of their own, and their lives are not so intricately dependent on me, does my purpose change? Within the larger circle called God's purpose for my life, motherhood is but one small sphere. There are many others. Marriage, writing, ministering, leading worship, my cherished friendships, and on like that. If any of these spheres disappear, the space is filled with God. There is no void. Just recently, I heard a concept that has revolutionized my understanding of my roles. Live your life as a diversified portfolio. Tashonda Brown, CEO of Chase Consumer Banking. 
heard on the Rant and Randomness podcast hosted by Lovey Ajayi Jones. Episode 24, uh, 30 minutes, 50 second mark. This idea has transformed my life. Miss Brown's principle is this. As human beings, we are more than just one thing. As women, we are mothers, wives, bosses, moguls, sisters, entrepreneurs, and so much more. We cannot make our whole life about just one role. Sure, we should do all things in excellence, but we do not have to take on everything in our life at the exact same time. Diversifying our portfolio means taking stock of everything that matters in our lives, family, ministry, work, business, passion projects, friendships, relationships with friends, and more, and attributing at least 1% to it. Everything must add up to 100% because that is all we have to give. For example, right now, my family needs at least 40% of my time and effort. Work gets about 30%. This book has taken at least 10%. The remaining 20% is for everything else. Friendships, solo projects, hobbies, and me time. Within those given percentage, I give 100% effort. I give my very best to everything that I have determined to be a priority. But I do not let my life be consumed with any one thing. As my seasons change, I can shift the percentage as the need arises. For example, when I first became a mom, work was about 20% of my time and effort. Family was 50% and everything else in my life had to fit in the remaining 30%. If I had made the baby 100% of my lifetime and effort, because trust me, I try to do just that, I would have been burnt out within a few days. It is a pace that is completely unsustainable. Every first-time mom remembers the exhausting yet exhilarating hypervigilance of bringing a newborn home for the first time. You did not sleep. Your days and nights were consumed with caring for the baby and making sure they were fed, dry, happy, and comfortable. But most of us made the sacrifice with the knowledge that it would not last forever. Could you imagine if parenting meant keeping that same pace of the newborn stage until your children reached adulthood? Being a parent would mean setting a fire to every other role you played, as a spouse, a friend, a daughter, or anything else, and presenting them as a burnt offering on the altar of parenthood. We are not designed to live like that. Yes, I am a mom, and I love it more than words alone can say. But while I am a mom, I am also more. I am a wife, a friend, a daughter, a budding entrepreneur, and a writer, attempting to find purpose by neglecting everything else that brings me fulfillment is a foolish way to organize my life. The same way being a wife could not be my sole purpose in life. Being a mom is not the only reason God put me on this earth. If it were, I would have been instantly fulfilled when I got married or when I gave birth. I have done both and I am still proclaiming loudly that fulfillment lies in Christ alone. I am sure by now you are wondering what percentage I have allocated to my spirituality. 10, 20, 50, 100? Here's the thing. Jesus is the portfolio holding my roles together. None of this works without him. 
I am the wife, mom, friend, daughter, business partner, writer, and entrepreneur I am because I am all of those things in Christ. I do not keep my spirituality in a box and separate it from the rest of my life. Doing that resulted in the hypocrisy that was on full display for the first 26 years of my life. I had kept my faith in Christ in a box that was only opened on Sunday mornings and at church conferences twice a year until I started living from a place of understanding Christ as the foundation of every role I hold. None of my different parts added up to a whole woman. Mom guilt is a liar and work-life balance is a myth. That's a quote by Tashanda Brown, Rants and Randomness Podcast, Episode 29. There, I said it. There was a time when I would beat myself up for going to work and leaving my kids in the care of a babysitter for 10 hours a day almost all their waking hours. Instead of continuing to believe the lies that my children would end up suffering because I did not stay home with them, I began to maximize our limited time together. We created memories and made time to play before bedtime and in the mornings. Why did I not just go back to staying home with my children? Because the passions and the gifts that God had given me required me to work both inside and outside of my home. When both my children were toddlers, two and four, I stayed home with them again. I was happy and content for that season because I knew the season was for a very specific purpose. The dreams and desires in my heart never wavered, but I gave them back to God and trusted that he would bring them to pass in his appointed time. Actress Yvonne Orji of Insecure on HBO and co-host of the Jesus Angel Love podcast once said, if it's God, it won't spoil Meaning, no matter how long it takes for my dreams to take shape and manifest, we, they are safe in God's hands. There was an appointed time for them to come to fruition. Finding work outside of running my own business by being employed by someone else healed a part of me that had been left wounded for many years. Working outside of the home was not only necessary to my God-given dreams and the care and upkeep of my family, It was vital in my growth and understanding of God's ability to open doors for me. There was a time in my life after our first son was born and while I was pregnant with his brother, where it felt like the dreams in my heart were just lying to me. I did not know where the desire to be a writer and a storyteller came from. I just started paying attention one day to how much joy and fulfillment I received from this quote hobby. It never de- I never deemed it as a career path since I did not know anyone who wrote for a living. Being a lawyer, that made sense because it made money. Writing sounded like a one-way ticket to becoming a starving artist. How does one even major in writing as a Nigerian child of immigrant parents? My parents have no framework for understanding creative pursuits as a career path and I knew better than to present such a thing to them. Writing was something I did for me. It gave me a thrill when others enjoyed my work, but all I could do with my love of writing was blogging and publishing for private enjoyment, or so I thought. When our second son was born, I suddenly started feeling a powerful nudge towards writing. I wanted to do it on a larger scale. I started having dreams of speaking and sharing my heart with those in my community. I began blogging more frequently. I moderated my first women's conference. The experience was exhilarating. It felt like I had stumbled into my purpose. 
I began dreaming tangibly of hosting women's group in our home and speaking to any gatherings that would have me. Those dreams brought me joy until I had to face reality. I was a mom of a newborn and a toddler. I had no money of my own to curate events. My husband worked full time to provide for us and I was always needed around my home. I had no connections that would open any doors and my blog was doing amazing if it reached 10 or 20 people with each post. My social circle was limited to the people who took interest in my life as a wife and a mom. Outside of those roles, I had no other friends. I was not one of those women who kept a slew of associates and acquaintances. The few deep friendships I cultivated were the bulk of my circle. At the time, I could not count 10 women I could call on if I wanted to do something social. Instead of giving me joy, my dreams were beginning to make me miserable. It was one thing to be home taking care of my children while my husband worked. There was no shame in being a stay-at-home mom and a stay-at-home wife. I enjoyed it and I made the most of my time. But it was quite another when God begins to give you dreams and aspirations that look nothing like your life. Hosting book clubs, facilitating women's conferences and brunches, having prayer meetings right in my living room, and cooking and sharing our life stories with other women in my kitchen. The dreams in my heart were endless. They were all centered on sisterhood, friendships, and building community with other women beyond just my small friend groups. But once again, I had no means and really no time for the things I desired to do. All my schedule allowed at the time was caring for my children, keeping my household afloat, and working here and there outside of our home. I did not know what to do with my dreams. They were at odds with my reality and the trajectory of my life. The distance between the two was driving me to despair. When I saw other women operating in the spaces that drew me, I mourned the life that could never be for me. It seemed all I was this all I was destined to be was a wife and a mom with dreams bigger than her. My saving grace came in the form of a global women's ministry called Wives in Waiting. I attended a few Bible studies with them in the past and was friendly with the founder, Shantae. Shantae and I developed an online friendship over the previous year and the ministry was expanding to Raleigh, North Carolina, just an hour north of us. Over the next several months, I tried to make the monthly meetings but they were scheduled on Saturdays when I was needed at my church for choir practice. After a few months of wasted effort, I jokingly told Shantae and the rally leader, Shalanda, that we needed a group in Greensboro and that I already knew they would make me lead it. Unbeknownst to me, Shantae and Shalanda had been praying specifically that same week for God to raise up a leader for the Greensboro Circle. So many women in my area were desiring the fellowship that the ministry offered to women of every age. By divine appointment, I began my tenure as a leader within Wives and Waiting, serving the women of Greensboro. I thought at the time that God was just answering my desire to serve women in ministry. It turns out that God was going to use the ministry to heal my own sense of inadequacy. When I began as a leader, I was still staying home with my children. I still had a broken view of my role as a wife and mom. I was still grappling with how I would help women in my city when I had absolutely no resources or connections. And what was I supposed to do with the dreams I knew came from God? For the previous years prior to joining Wives in Waiting, 
All I had done with my desires was drink. There was no action points or goals because I did not even know where to start. The closest I had ever gotten to the community and sisterhood I was dreaming of was during my years as a facilitator for a program I designed at my previous church to disciple teenage girls. The group ran for almost three years before we disbanded. I did not have any real ministry experience with gathering women together for healing and deliverance. My dreams seemed impossibly far-fetched. I look back fondly over my time with Bethel Campus Fellowship and the many nights I had spent gathering the young women for fellowship, prayer, and sleepovers. The joy I had in those seasons of cultivating sisterhood told me that this was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But without the backing of a ministry like BCF, which already had young women who were eager for discipleship and growth, I was lost. I had no clue how to build anything new from the ground up. Then God spoke to me. Shantae taught a Bible study that answered those questions and more. God took it upon himself to make a promise to Abraham. He promised to make his friend Abraham the father of nations. And then after decades of waiting, God brought that promise to fulfillment through the birth of Isaac. Then, God who gave them Isaac after years of waiting and trusting, asked Abraham to sacrifice his son as an offering to God. Abraham was prepared to do it. Abraham trusted so fully in God that he was willing to sacrifice a dream that came specifically from God. Remember, Abraham never asked God for a child. God determined to bless Abraham with children as numerous as the stars. Isaac was a God-given dream, and the God who gave Isaac to his parents wanted him back. I had my answer. There are dreams that God himself will place in our hearts, passions we did not discover until the Holy Spirit spoke them to us. Sometimes in pursuit of those dreams, God tests our obedience. Do we still want him, or are we only after his gifts? Do we desire to know his heart, or then we want to see his hand? God may ask us to offer back the very desires he placed in our hearts as a sacrifice of obedience. Are we willing to trust the God of resurrection and life? To believe that if God takes away the things we desire most, he can resurrect, replace, or restore them with better. I had to believe. I had no choice. There was no way for me to accomplish anything I desired without God. So, for the first time in years, I gave my dreams back to God and walked away. In the years in between, I worked part-time or not at all. I stayed home with my children. I wrote from home or in my office. Our oldest went to preschool for the first time and I was there to see him off and pick him up. My children thrived and I found my pace in motherhood. I hosted small groups with my friend and studied the Bible together. I spoke to youth groups and chaperoned their events. I served in my church and enjoyed whatever my life was in each moment, doing my best to worry less about the unknown future. In the years since releasing those dreams back to God, I have learned the meaning of waiting well. I used to believe that waiting on God meant standing still until he brought something to fruition. I have learned that waiting on God means obeying his last set of instructions while seizing new opportunities to serve. 
Wisen Waiting became the training ground that God used to help me to hone my dreams and my abilities. I came to Wisen Waiting with a deep sense of inadequacy due to my lack of employment. Thanks largely to Shantae's leadership and encouragement, I began to experience deliverance from the fear of failure that had kept me stuck for over 10 years. I went on my first job interview in over a decade, and even though I did not get the position, my confidence soared. Shantae affirmed the gift of God in my life and continually spoke with confidence about my abilities. Her confidence in me strengthened my resolve. For the first time in over a decade, I revamped my resume and began actively applying for jobs in my chosen field. Two years after giving my dreams back to God, I got my first job in over 14 years. The position that I have been blessed to fill for almost two years now has given me my first professional opportunity to pursue my purpose and follow my dreams. Most of this book was written as a result of my job. I spent eight to 10 hours each day in front of my computer, reading through evidence for trial and providing feedback to my bosses and clients. As I work, the pace of this job gives me time to, to develop my thoughts about various topics like marriage, motherhood, and business. As inspiration hits, I jot down notes and continue with the day's work. When I clock out for the day, typically around 6 p.m., I pick up my kids and rush home to flesh out my notes. The entire writing process feels like it was divinely orchestrated by God. Having a quote, regular job, gave me the time and freedom to pursue my passion. Had I been home with my children, those 10 hours of quiet reflection as I sat and did my work for the day would never have happened. I would have been too busy chasing after two toddlers to be alone with my thoughts. The pace at which I was able to create was a function of having a job that paid well, but did not suck the life out of me. I had time to think, which gave me time to write. Through my writing, my children get to see their mom fearlessly and happily pursuing her dreams. They get an example of what it means to work and honor someone else's vision while simultaneously honoring and working God's vision for your life. They get to see that working a nine to five is not the equivalent of someone, quote, paying you to forget your dreams, but rather it is a training ground and an opportunity to use every God-given assignment and allow it to groom you for your life's work and purpose. I prayed for this job. For over 10 years, all I wanted was a job that would support and provide for me and my family. Now that I finally have it, I refuse to set it on fire on the altar of mom guilt. I am a happier, more fulfilled version of myself when I am operating in all of my gifts. That includes work. My children deserve that type of a mother. So that was part two of chapter five, Mayhem and Motherhood. Join us next time as we finish up chapter five and pick up with chapter six. We will be visiting the friend zone chapter the next time. Take care and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.